This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, October 5th, 2022 on KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. Hispanic Heritage Month observations are continuing through mid-October at the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith. Up next, the second annual Salsa at the Bell Tower tomorrow evening from 5.30 to 7.30 at the UAFS Bell Tower with music, food, and dance. We'll talk about food and music in our second half hour today. Downtown Springdale will host Behind the Music with musicians Sarah Lily Edmonds and Rodney Redmond, along with food inspired by conversations each musician had with Chef Case Daguerre. That night of conversation music previewed later on our show. And in about 12 minutes, conversation from the latest episode of our podcast, Undisciplined. It's a discussion of the professional basketball world before the NBA integrated. At the top of our program, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, located in the western Pacific between Hawaii and Australia, was among the last nations on Earth to remain free of COVID-19. That changed August 8th. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, a team of U.S.-based Marshallese medical providers, including Arkansas physician Dr. Sheldon Ricklin, quickly mobilized. For two and a half years, the borders of the Republic of the Marshall Islands were closed to protect the population from the global coronavirus pandemic. As a result, the island nation has counted zero COVID-19 cases. That is, until August 8th. Marshall Island officials announced the virus had been detected in several individuals. Dr. Sheldon Rookland, a Marshallese native who resides in northwest Arkansas, says he was shocked by the news. You know, I was scared because, you know, I still had family there. I had my sisters. We had our mother-in-law there. We had nieces and nephews and grandkids and family members. So you, you know, it's, it's scary just after going through COVID in Arkansas. Rickland, an associate professor in the College of Medicine at UAMS Northwest and a clinician, was at ground zero in 2020 as COVID-19 infections spread like wildfire through the Marshallese migrant community in Northwest Arkansas. So once he heard about the outbreak back home, he dropped everything and flew 6,000 miles to the Marshall Island capital city of Majuro with Hawaiian colleagues, Marshallese physician, Dr. Wilfred Alec, and nurse Mendoza Kabua, met by a team from the Ministry of Health and Human Services, which supported their journey. They set to work immediately, he says. The main priority at that point was basically to get everybody safe first, uh, find out who's vaccinated and who's not, and vaccinate those who were due for the vaccines, treat those that needed to be treated, you know, who's at risk for you know, bad complications that needed to be on oral antivirals like Paxlovid. So that was their first priority, basically open up all these different test and treat sites across the islands and the atolls. Rickland says the first week he and nurse Kabua saw up to 100 patients per day with Marshall Islands medical providers expediting treatment to hospitals along with five dozen healthcare centers operate on the Marshall Islands, comprised of 29 low-lying coral atolls and five volcanic islands. Supplies of personal protective equipment, masks, and test kits were also flown in. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that the attitude and the point that the Ministry of Health and the leadership in the government were basically, they knew that we were already at high risk. 
right? You know, we, they already know that the population was at risk of bad complications. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, can be especially fatal to the elderly and individuals who are immune-compromised. Indigenous Marshallese pre-colonization were a healthy subsistence culture, but centuries of foreign occupation, including by the U.S., which used the Marshall Islands as a Cold War nuclear weapons test range for a decade, has resulted in pervasive cancer, diabetes, and heart disease in the population. Rickland says by the second week of the outbreak, COVID-19 cases had soared in the Marshall Islands, infecting nearly a third of the population, killing 17 individuals. Officials ordered a nationwide shutdown. It almost looked like a ghost town, actually, when we had arrived that week. You know, normally there's kids and people out playing or talking story or, you know, doing their everyday living. Uh, but when we arrived at the airport and driving from the airport to, de- to town, town to our hotel, there were rarely anybody that we saw on the streets and rarely any cars driving around. We did see a line of people that were outside the bank, socially distanced, trying to get money from the bank, but they were limiting the number of people who couldn't go in. Anybody, there were a few people trying to get into the store, but they were getting their temperatures checked, and you know they, they had limited people that were going in there. And the only the other people that we saw were those who were at these test to treat sites who were trying to get tested and get treated or get vaccinated. Marshall Island residents were instructed to mask, social distance, and isolate if symptomatic and, if positive, treated with the antiviral drug Paxlovid, provided by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who understood the risks, especially to Marshallese people. Yeah, I think, you know, the part of the reason why we were all so concerned is, you know, what we had seen as far as how COVID-19 had disproportionately affected the Marshallese population in Northwest Arkansas. I mean, early on in the pandemic, this is between March and June of 2020. You know, when it hit uh, Northwest Arkansas, I mean, we comprise of the population in Northwest Arkansas, Benton and Washington County, maybe about 1.5 to 3% of the population. But 19% of the cases here were Marshallese. 9% of the hospitalizations were Marshallese. And even worse, 38% of the deaths during that time period were Marshallese. So when the first case came out in the islands, that's what came out. That's the first thing, at least for myself, was thinking about. OMG, you know, what, what's going to happen? You know, if you take what's ha- what happened here to what happens over there, that was the worry for us, how it was going to impact us. But because a majority of the residents of the Marshall Islands are vaccinated, as much as 90%, Rickland says, infection rates are starting to subside. They, they have this high rate of vaccination because they had the two and a half years of vaccinating people. And finally, you know, the science has caught up to the virus that we know what works. We know that we have therapies that we can treat them inpatient and even outpatient nowadays. So they were smart in their thought process. Business, transportation, and schools in the Marshall Islands are slowly reopening, and the mask mandate is gone. 
The origins of the viral outbreak in the Republic of the Marshall Islands remains unknown. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. And while active cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas continue falling, the Department of Health is reporting 32 additional deaths since Friday. That's according to numbers contained in yesterday's statistics. Deaths are no longer being reported on weekends, and the department says it's often taking a couple of months before deaths from the disease are being reported as such. Active cases in yesterday's report fell by about 2,300 people compared to Monday. That's about 3,700 people feeling the effects of the virus right now in Arkansas. It's the first time the number has dropped below 4,000 since the beginning of June. Hospitalizations in yesterday's report down by three. 206 people are being treated for COVID-19 in hospitals statewide. Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 8, and noon to 6 on Sunday on the Square in Bentonville. WalmartMuseum.com for more information. Little Wing Productions presents a sleep at the wheel Merry Texas Christmas, y'all, to the auditorium in Eureka Springs, Friday, December 16th, with special guests, the Kate Brothers. Tickets at tickets.thundertix.com. Historic Cane Hill, in partnership with the Arkansas Archaeological Survey, presents Archaeology Day, a free event October 8th, allowing visitors to participate in activities to learn about archaeology and the artifacts of Historic Cane Hill. HistoricCaneHillAR.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large. In 2021, more than 70% of players in the National Basketball Association, the NBA, were black, or African-American. But even in the days before integrated professional sports in America, black communities have been playing basketball. On the latest episode of Undiscipline, host Dr. Karee Banton and Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore spoke with Claude Johnson, author of The Black Fives, about these pre-NBA all-black teams. We jump into their conversation as they're talking about how Lester Walton, a journalist originally from St. Louis, helped highlight the sport nationally. Lester Walton was a, a young journalist who was from St. Louis, and he arrived in New York City around the time that there were these these amazing giant vaudeville productions that were taking place that were African-American productions. And he got some money and became famous as a lyricist for some of these shows. And, but he was also a great writer, and he eventually took over as the what they called, uh, well, back then basketball was under the category of entertainment. And so they had a stage and entertainment section in the New York Age, which was the most widely read black newspaper at the time. And he was that editor. And so he started writing about basketball in its infancy, starting in Brooklyn. And but back then, the New York Age uh, was part of a bigger network of black newspapers that were syndicated. So what he wrote in the New York Age was was also then printed across the country in other black newspapers like the Indianapolis Freeman. And so then what he was writing, he knew, he had a sense that this was a big deal, even though there were only a hundred people at this game, and even though the score was thirty-one to one, <laughs> um, you know, he he would say this was a great struggle for victory. Hmm. You know, and, and then people in Indianapolis and everywhere would just lose their minds and say, wow, we got to do that, too. You know, they didn't realize and it didn't matter that the score was 31 to 1. What mattered is the fact that they played this game at all and that it was covered in a newspaper like that was a that was progress for the race. And, and so people don't realize you have to start somewhere. 
and it, the first game wasn't some amazing Hollywood production. If you were to tell me today that a that a basketball game was thirty one to one, I don't know that I would be terribly inclined to to hear the recap on that. Did he have the foresight to see that you know this game may be thirty one to one, but future games will be stronger and, and future games will be more electric, or you know was it just a genuine holy cow they're playing this game? Yeah, it was it was the latter. I mean, every single made basket every single pass probably every single dribble was seen as sensational (laughs) and so it didn't really matter if it was 31 to 1 because the spectators were they weren't as connected to either team it was more just we're here to watch and it's a social event Ah. and we're also watching this other team play and so you know there were fans from both for both teams they they called them rooters at the time because they rooted for their you know whichever team and then they um came up with a new innovation right around the time of uh, the rise of the radio and the phonograph when suddenly black music became popular it was already popular as sheet music but after the phonograph and radio people wanted to hear these bands in person because you couldn't play that one, you couldn't play that orchestra on your on your piano in the parlor. Right. So there was a, a ballroom construction craze, and then you had these ballrooms um, where, in some nights, they were empty, and enterprising black basketball promoters realized, well, we can bring in an orchestra, and we can have a basketball game. So they combined music with the sport, mm-hmm. uh, so that there was there was an orchestra or a band playing before the game during halftime and after the game, and then it would morph into a dance. And so all these early advertisements for the games would say basketball as two words and dance. (laughs) And that's because the dance was always part of it from, from the very beginning in these, in these early encounters. And so the games weren't just, Hey, we're going to root for a team. It was also an enormously meaningful social event. That's interesting. My, you know, it's quite hilarious. I, you know, when growing up in the Caribbean, my dad used to say, I guess the reason why basketball hadn't taken root in Jamaica or I guess the wider Caribbean was that the score was too high. (laughs) He's like, put the, put the the hoop up higher. Let it be, you know, two to one. Let it where we can climb the posts and get the ball in there. <laughs> and I guess, you know, it's because we're used to test cricket and, you know, we're used to soccer, mm-hmm. you know, football, as we call it, where the score is like nil all sometimes. You know, it's like, what? This is 120 to 100. What? That score is outrageous. <laughs> but I thought cricket had really high scores. Am I, am I wrong? Yes, cricket, because, I mean, you can score sixes and, and fours and things like that. So I, I guess in some ways, you know, um, test cricket is a whole separate animal. You could uh, you could stay at the crease for like a whole half a day and not make any <laughs> runs, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it, it yeah, yeah, it's a it's it's a very fascinating. You you quote a Panamanian immigrant in your book who remembers back the tensions between different members of the diaspora, who says we were all strangers, the black American, the black foreigner. We did not like one another, and the white foreigner liked us less, and the white American hated all of us. What role did basketball um, play in bringing together the diaspora in America? Well, what's, int- what's very interesting, what interested me was 
also the way that basketball was seen at all by authorities who were, you know, physical fitness and amateur athletic union authorities because they they also embraced basketball was embraced by European immigrants as well. Mm-hmm. Especially on the Lower East Side, there were there were many Jewish immigrants who readily found the game to be valuable in their community too. And so um, the reason why, why these officials liked basketball is because there would be fans from all over the place, from Russia, Slovakia, Italy, and they were all sitting side by side and they saw how if you're playing the game and you're following the rules, there's a certain way you play. And they believed that by watching basketball, a new immigrant could learn about American civics, civic orientation and and leadership and how to behave in the court of the land. There are rules, you have to follow them. If you don't follow them, there are penalties. There are, you know, free throws and, or you can get ejected or if you have enough fouls, you get kicked out of the game. But that wasn't really the case uh, with the amount of resources that were provided for black uh, youth, both men and women, who had to still, you know, find whatever way they could to play. And, and so, you know, there was a common ground when you, eventually when you had these different pockets of African-Americans around New York City, they figured out a way to play regardless. They would rent ballrooms, church basements, and eventually they had uh, their, own, uh, their own venues, but it took a while. But the diaspora is interesting because one of the key players in this was this uh, pair of Jewish entrepreneurs in Harlem who owned a place called the Manhattan Casino. Uh, that was a large ballroom facility that could house 6,000. And they started making their venue available to these African-American teams. And it became so popular that teams from all over the place even two away teams would play up in New York City. So Howard might play Hampton in New York City just because Hmm. it was the center of the black basketball universe at the time. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like for these black five teams to go and play in predominantly white communities, especially when we think of like the Rust Belt or the Midwest? Uh, They played against these all-white teams in a Jim Crow pre-civil rights era. Yeah, well, that's a great question. So you have to ask, well, how could an all-black team in the 1930s during the Great Depression, during Jim Crow, go to an all-white state, an all-white town like Oshkosh, play, defeat their local all-star team, leave safely, and get invited back? (laughs) And again and again, year after year. Well, that's because, first, it was such a success and it, it was considered to be such a novelty. You know, back then they didn't have movies. They might have had a movie theater, but a lot of towns didn't. And so these patrons would come from miles around and they would patronize the local restaurant, bar, saloon, um, merchants, uh, hotels, and, you know, possibly gamble on the, on the game or what have you. And then uh, watch this amazing game where they'd never seen this kind of action before. And so people looked forward to that and then they left. So everybody was a winner, even if they lost the game. And so these African-American teams like the New York Renaissance that was formed in 1923 in Harlem were like a mobile economic stimulus when they (laughs) arrived in town. But when you step back, you realize they had to shake hands 
and come to some kind of an alliance and a, an agreement of how they were going to split the gate receipts. And uh, this business model was very lucrative. It worked uh, because it helped them you know, travel and continue to travel and put gas in their car. Eventually they had a, a bus, but it wasn't without difficulty because they also had to, there were some uh, pioneers who, when they were interviewed, these are former Rens players and even their traveling secretary, Eric Illich, would say that, you know, at the beginning, they just constantly had to break the jaws of some of these people. They had to knock them out, their opponents, their white opponents, until they realized they're all right, like we respect them. Hmm. And then after that, they just played, played their asses off, like hard basketball. And that was that. But before that, you, you had to sort of establish yourself first. And um, how they did it uh, was always, you know, was fascinating, but their traveling road manager had to carry a loaded revolver in his pocket when they counted up the gate receipts. And, you know, just in case there was anything that was out of, out of the ordinary and you needed to uh, make a point. Claude Johnson is the author of The Black Fives, the epic story of basketball's forgotten era. You can hear the entire conversation with Dr. Karee Banton and Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore by subscribing to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Undisciplined is a production of Ozarks at Large, KUIF Public Radio, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. The Gallery on Garrison in Fort Smith, celebrating the fashion of sisters Kathleen Schwartz and Cheryl Keller with the exhibition Framed in Fashion, the opening reception Saturday night from 6 until 8. Since a very young age, Kathleen's passion has been in fashion. That led to a degree in textiles and clothing from the University of Texas at Austin. Then she launched a 40-plus year career in the fashion industry, working for companies such as J.C. Penney, Levi Strauss & Company, Q4 Samsung. You get the idea. Some of Cheryl's earliest memories are of creating clothes for her paper dolls from the pictures she found in her mother's fashion catalogs and sewing patterns. She says in elementary school she began to draw beautiful women in elaborate costumes. Her firm belief that fashion is art drives her to explore ways of expressing the magic and drama of all things fashion in her work. You can find out more about the artist and more about Saturday night's reception at thegalleryongarrison.com. And registration for the 2022 Ozark Blues Society Blues Challenge and Best Self-Produced CD Competition open until Saturday. The challenge itself takes place Saturday, October 22nd, at the Meteor in downtown Bentonville. Winners will be selected in several categories, include Best Band or Best Solo Duel. All winners advance to the 2023 International Blues Challenge to compete with blues musicians from all around the world on Beale Street in Memphis. All the details about entering can be found at ozarkbluesociety.org. And the bare necessities of honey harvesting explained Tuesday evening at the Fayetteville Public Library. This summer, Ed Levi conducted the first-ever honey harvest from the library's hive. The extraction was filmed. He'll discuss each step of the harvest from knowing when to pull the honey to bottling it. He'll be inside the Willard and Pat Walker Community Room Tuesday night, the 11th, from 6 until 7.30. You can learn more at faylib.org. Little Wing Productions presents Marty Stewart and his fabulous superlatives with special guest Junior Brown Friday, October 7th at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs. Tickets at 
theaud.org or tickets.thundertix.com. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Discover something for everyone in the family this fall at the Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville. New programs begin soon for homeschool families, early learners, and creed of kids ages 10 to 14. For more information and registration, amazium.org. This is Ozarks at Large. At the height or depth of pandemic-caused lockdowns, our chances to be with others were limited. Those Zoom cocktail hours seemed novel for about a week. As in-person activities have returned, there is an emphasis on embracing and celebrating community. Saturday night, the Downtown Springdale Alliance is hosting an evening at the Apollo Theater that's planned around community, or as G.T. Thompson, the director of events for the Downtown Springdale Alliance, describes it. Sharing of vibes and feelings and all of those type of things with food and great artists. The night is billed as Behind the Music, and the two artists G.T. mentioned are singer-songwriters Sarah Lily Edmonds and Rodney Redmond. Both will perform Saturday night and tell some of the stories behind their songs. Sarah says she's ready to perform in front of an audience, bringing songs from her recently released record, Or Do I?, which was recorded during the solitary time of the pandemic. I definitely got to use that time um, in a really beautiful way. Um, But this is a really exciting event, and the collaboration is really exciting. Um, I think it's going to be an awesome coming together of forces. I don't want to tell you what I'm thinking about I don't want to go there right now Sometimes surfaces are better left unread Saturday night's Behind the Music isn't just music. Chef Case Taguera is preparing food just for the evening, inspired by the musicians and their songs. He says he talked with both singers to find out what food connects with them. A memory Sarah shared of chicken food carts when she was in New York City, inspired Case. These really great memories is connected to her father and her time in New York. And, um, and if you're not familiar, it's this really great dish that is sort of you know, halal means, you know, basically permissible, which is an, an Islamic, you know, way of saying that, yes, you can have this food. It is okay to eat it. It's, it's, you know, prepared and, and done in a way that is, is permissible by Islamic law. And it's this street cart that's in New York city that is basically it's sort of made, it's made its way through the Mediterranean and they either do it with chicken or lamb and uh, with the yellow rice and then, um, you know, pita bread and, and uh, a little salad, some, some greens. We're going to church it up and make it a little more high south with some things. But, um, but uh, a really delicious and like kind of when I think about this dish, I really think about family and I think about community. And I know she does, too. It has like these this, this thread of when she was when she was younger and, and what it meant to her. So we're going to try to replicate that and put our own little high, high Southern spin on it. And then, you know, talking to Rodney, he, you know, his whole thing is um, he's a meat and potatoes guy and he, and he loves chicken too, but he has a really great affinity for chocolate. And so we're doing sort of, 
you know, if you listen to his music, he, I, I love the, the, the energy and the sort of, um, this idea of, uh, you know, when you listen to him, it, it sounds like his music sounds like Arkansas. doing uh, a jar um, uh, a milk chocolate jar de creme which is basically because uh, he has he loves chocolate and so we're doing a, a, a jar de creme with you know lavender whipped cream that we're getting lavender from you know, here locally that we've dried over the summer and um, and gonna have him experience chocolate hopefully in a way that he has never experienced before but still try kind of staying true to his you know his his love for chocolate especially from when he was a kid behind the music is part of downtown springdale's month-long celebration ozarktober that includes other concerts a bonfire and halloween connected programming gt thompson the director of events for the downtown springdale alliance says saturday nights behind the music is part hometown celebration but also about recognizing the talent that lives here you know this event is just the start to do that and i'm so happy to have um run into chef case because when we first got on the phone talking about this event and when he told me what his thoughts were and he said, I want to speak to the artist. That was one of the first things before we talked menu, before we talked about anything, uh, he wanted to talk to the artist. And I got to tell you, that was like a game changer in my mind. I said, Oh my God, he's going right there to where the passion is. And, uh, you know, both artists were really excited that he was interested to know what they thought and what their history was with food and, and things of that nature. So I could tell you this conversation on this evening is going to be amazing. And Sarah Lily Edmonds says she's just eager to be with other people sharing an evening. It's all stories in one shape or form. And so I love that this night is built around sharing those stories in all these different, you know, mediums. Um, and for me, when I do my work, when I write, the words and the stories really are the core of it for me. It's it's poetry with, you know, added melody. Like I I absolutely love the opportunity to to be asked these questions and to answer them um, and to be part of this conversation. It's it's honestly like a, a dream performance. Behind the music is Saturday night at the Apollo Theater on Emma in downtown Springdale. You can find out much more at downtownspringdale.org. The song we heard from Sarah Lily Edmonds is the title song from her CD, Or Do I? And the Rodney Redmond song is from his recent EP titled Growing Up in Bentonville. You can find either or both wherever you find music online. This weekend is filled with chances to hear stories behind songs. Friday night, the next edition of Mount Sequoia's Music on the Mountain series presents Nashville-born and Nashville-based singer-songwriter Mark Stewart. Stewart has been playing seriously, professionally, since he was a teenager, first in bar bands, then with musicians like Freddie Fender, Steve Forbert, Joan Baez, Steve Earle, and his wife, Stacy Earle. He's recorded records with Stacy, and as a solo artist, he's on tour often, so the last couple of years have been different. But he told me yesterday 
he still played shows of sort during the pandemic because it was important to him to keep the performance muscles tuned. I started taking guitar and going out into a wooded area where I was all alone except the wildlife. And I would go out there and do essentially like an entire show, even doing storytelling between the songs and all that. And, and that way it kept my voice in shape and, and kept my, my guitar playing, you know, at the level that I, I, I need it to be. I've read in a couple accounts that, that you know thousands of songs. Is that is that accurate? You know, I think it is. I, I, I've been in music a really, really long time. And uh, since day one, I, I think for me, amassing songs to play and sing was important because usually I was in bands and I, if I wasn't fronting the band, I was at least one of the vocalists in the bands. I also did probably uh, thousands of engagements where I was solo. And so, uh, you know, doing those kinds of engagements, you need to you need to have a huge repertoire of songs. And I did. I, I did stints where I played in blues bands, and that's all we did. And I played in country bands, and all we did were, were country songs. I played in rock bands, and all we did was like, you know, what we would now call classic rock. So I had this huge array of, of um, material that I just, and for some reason that I can't explain, I seem to be able to retain it. So like, if somebody walked up to me right now and asked me to do a Steve Miller band song from the late 70s or the early 80s or something, and and I hadn't actually done it since the early 80s, I seem to still be able to do it. What is it, you know, you talk about those bands, but you've played with so many great musicians, not to, you know, I mean, your wife, of course, and, and, and all the musicians you're connected with, I think Steve Forbert. What kind of inspiration can you get, not just being with them, but just sort of playing with them in the moment? Well, you know, when you're, when you're standing right there alongside someone on stage, or, or possibly even, you know, working in a studio with them on a record, you're, you're firsthand getting that experience of what they're all about. You know, if you're, if you're a, a songwriter, like I'm a songwriter, and, and my brother-in-law, Steve Earl, he was just in my house. He, he, just, he just walked out of here to go to the airport, I think. But, you know, he's a great songwriter. So just being close to him and, and seeing you know, how he operates, you learn from it. I, you know, I remember being on stage with Freddie Fender, who was, you know, a, a hit-making artist, and I got to tour with him for, uh, you know, like a year of my life. And standing on stage, he was sort of a golden-voiced singer. And he had just wonder, this wonderful singing voice, and it was in, inspirational, and I would get to work with him, you know, in, in the dressing room right before we went on stage. He might want to run through a song or something and you just kind of learn from it you know and when you're learning from people who've been at it for a really long time uh they've got a lot to give and a lot a lot you can you can learn from so I, I think i was always pretty smart about keeping my antenna up and like trying to absorb anything i could from from any kind of veteran musician or artist i was around well and i guess it never potentially never ends you can always learn you should always be growing, and, and I'm really proud of that because um, I kind of feel like I'm still on the upward ascension, you know, 
of being a singer and a player and a songwriter and an entertainer. Um, I don't think I've slid back. I don't think I've even really leveled off. And that's where the thing about like, going out in the woods during the COVID period was important because I had never slid back. You know, I had never been lesser than, than where I had been at my, my peak. And I, I just was determined not to let that happen. What should we expect when you're, when you're at Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that's, that's sort of uh, you know, a hallmark of my performance is that I'm kind of diverse musically. I think you hear a lot of flavorings from rock and blues and country and folk music and rockabilly, western swing, R&B. I'm kind of all over the map. And uh, you get a lot of storytelling. I like to recount stories about you know things I've witnessed and done in my career. I think they're interesting. <laughs> I hope they are. But you know, sometimes I'll fall into talking about some of those artists I worked with, uh, especially if they're if they're uh, artists of notoriety. I'll talk about being on tour with them, and I'll tell like some sort of story, possibly one they don't want me telling. <laughs> but it's like a little bit of an inside scoop to the audience to hear a firsthand story about being with Freddie Fender or Joan Baez or Steve Earle or Steve Forbert or whoever it is. And then I'll do one of their songs. Even. And, and uh, usually the audience really responds to that kind of thing. They, they seem to really appreciate it. Well, the great news is you're going to be in a great element when you're here at Mount Sequoia this weekend. Um, you'll be surrounded by woods. But unlike those COVID-era concerts, you will have people in front of you. <laughs> well, hey, don't, don't, you know, don't cheapen my audience. I had, I had everything from birds to crickets to grasshoppers and, and frogs. I mean, I knew they were out there, and I knew they were listening. In fact, I think I might have spotted a Bigfoot or two. Mark Stewart will be the next performer in the Mount Sequoia Music on the Mountain series that takes place Friday night at Mount Sequoia. You can find out more at mountsequoia.org. Join KUAF, the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, and the Fayetteville Public Library for the R Word book discussion series with author, speaker, and historian Jamar Tisby, who will join us virtually to speak on his book, How to Fight Racism, that was featured on The R Word, a limited series podcast from KUAF. Can you share some of your story with us? Who are you and why are you here today? (laughs) It's a long story. The short version is I am a black Christian who has learned the hard way about the enduring racism in some circles of white Christianity. Join in the discussion on how to fight racism Thursday, October 13th at 6.30 p.m. Go to KUAF.com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks so much for being with us on this Wednesday. I'm Kyle Kellams. Let's play a little catch-up on this edition of Ozarks at Large. Earlier this year, you may recall, we talked with Kathy Thompson and Jason Smith from Walton Art Center as they were beginning to curate the exhibition Our Art, Our Region, Our Time. They had just issued an open call for regional artists in any medium to submit their work. Well, now those works have been selected. And last night, a reception for the artists at the Joy Pratt Markham Gallery in Walton Art Center 
was the first chance for anybody, including the artists, to see how the selected works were being exhibited. Just as that reception was beginning last evening, I met up with Nick Hobbs and asked if we could talk about his pair of graphite on paper drawings. First, though, we had to find where in the gallery they were. It was his first time to see the exhibition. I don't. I just oh, got here. Go <laughs> let's go find it. Oh, yeah. Those two are mine. One of Nick's pieces, titled Vertigo, is a street-level view of a skyscraper. The other, titled Uplift, is a downward view of a crater on the moon. That comes from thinking about, like, our relationship to these two images. You know, that's how we experience skyscrapers. They, they feel so overwhelmingly large when you're standing at the base of it. And at the same time, we look at the, you know, lunar landscape. We've only ever really seen it from above because we see it through the eyes of space probes, you know? And so, I don't know, this almost feels smaller to me. The, the moon image almost feels smaller than, to me than the... the the skyscraper, and I think that contradiction is kind of what's interesting about it for me. How were these created? Uh, from images. I source all of my uh, drawings from images that I collect. That's another part of like trying to synthesize the whole into one framework. Um, so, like for example, the the reference image for the skyscraper image is actually from uh, a Looney Tunes episode. So you might, it's, it's kind of hard to tell because of the way it's been rendered, but like this, I drew this from a picture of a cartoon. Um, and then this is from, uh, I don't remember which Apollo mission, but one of the Apollo missions, they were in the, you know, their little module and they, with, probably with like a, you know, a film camera took a picture from above. So interesting, Looney Tunes, so that puts me, you know, World War II, maybe post-war when it was created. and. The moon makes me think of the earlier mid-70s, even if it was uh -huh. a probe yeah. from later. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, that, and like, I keep going, it's all kind of comes back to like that synthesis of the big picture. I'm really interested in deep history and, you know, our origins. So like a lot of my imagery too comes from like historical artifacts. Um, I have another drawing it's a diptych, it's, it's this sort of, uh, it's a museum diorama uh, of this like Precambrian underwater landscape, you know, um, trilobites, little ancient creatures, and then next to it is uh, an almost identical picture. It was kind of fun finding these two images that speak to each other. Next to the museum diorama is a picture of a Precambrian landscape, but it's an episode of Spongebob. Um, and they're both sort of rendered in the same way. And so, like, I'm just kind of trying to imagine, uh, you know, graphite and paper as a singular framework through which I can synthesize all these things, you know? If you look at it and you can't tell it's from the Looney Tunes, if, if you see it as, as a graphite drawing, then, you know, that, that's putting it in the same framework as this as this photograph from the moon two very different things but hopefully i can bring them both into the familiar realm and i know you just got here when i did so you haven't had a chance but i love what it's next to i don't know who this yeah. art is but it's a landscape as well of sorts yeah yeah it's beautiful um yeah a lot different than mine it's very minimalist and uh, abstract but yeah i think that's the cool thing about this show and again you know i haven't i haven't had a chance to walk around all the way but um, it'll be very interesting to see 
what essentially amounts to a survey of the artistic production of Northwest Arkansas. You can find out more about Nick at Instagram. Just look for Nick underscore Hobbs. Or you can go online to nickhobbs.art. And we discovered that the piece next to his drawings we both admired is Stephen Schneider's Solitude. On the other side of the gallery are two collage pieces created by Erin Giles, including a colorful entry she calls Helping Hand. So to, to describe for listeners, it looks like yes. I'm going to try my attempt, okay. and yep. we'll see where we go yep. here. Sounds good. To me, it looks like we're west, perhaps Arizona or Colorado. <laughs> and then there is a curtain mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. up top, right, mm-hmm. as if it's being pulled back for the beginning of a play, maybe? Mm-hmm. And we have a disembodied hand and then another disembodied hand along with a butterfly and maybe a seashell. Mm-hmm. And it makes me feel mm-hmm. warm and secure. Oh, I love that. Yes, that's definitely the vibe I was going for. Um, I'm a hand-cut collage artist. I work digitally, but my passion is hand-cut. So these are actually fine art prints of hand-cut pieces. And um, I collect a lot of old uh, vintage magazines. And you are right about the Arizona aspect, I think you said, or desert. Um, um, but this was from the background, just the sky. It was from an old Arizona Highways magazine from the 50s. And then all of the rest of it are hand-cut pieces from vintage magazines put together to create a feeling. That's what my art is about. And yes, I, I I wanted this piece, or it just kind of came together as something warm and comforting and kind of a break from reality, um, looking into another world that, like a dream. So how do you, when, you, when you're putting it together, mm-hmm. how do you manipulate the images? How do you decide where they're gonna go? Yeah, I do, um, I have like a gathering phase where like I go through my um, paper media and um, you know, kind of maybe I'll start with like one image or that stands out that I'm like, ooh, I wanna build a piece around this. Yeah, actually, or maybe it just uh, ends up being like a color not. story where I'm like, ooh, all of this like might look good together. And um, really it's, um, it's very much the way I, um, you know, that flow state, a meditative process where I music is really important to me. So I kind of have a certain vibe of music I listen to when, when I make and just start like arranging until something feels good. And then I just keep kind of working with that. And it's very, um, there. it's all hand cut. I keep saying that, um, but um, it's very much, I, I organize it all very tightly and then start the gluing process. So it's kind of crazy. <laughs> the, this, the longer disembodied, not just hand, but arm. It looks like it's on an old laser disc or a vinyl record. Yes, that was from a. Um, it was a. I, I collect um, like interior design magazines from the 80s, and they're the, like and like corporate interior design magazines, and they just have the most bizarre ads. And this was for I think like you know like a very early computer. Um, advertisement and I just liked the rainbow in the hand. More about Aaron Giles can be found at Instagram. Just search for Aaron Giles Collage. That's A-A-R-O-N-G-I-L-E-S. Aaron Giles Collage or the website Aaron-Collage.com. Our art, our region, 
our time. We'll have an opening reception for the public tomorrow night at Walton Art Center from 5 until 7 and remain in the Joy Pratt Markham Gallery through November 14th. The 90 pieces, selected from more than 400 submissions, are accompanied by QR codes that let you find out much more about each artist. 100% of sales from the exhibition directed toward the artist. This is Ozarks at Large. Circles NWA is hosting the event When Earning More Means Earning Less, addressing the cliff effect, a hidden barrier keeping people stuck in poverty. It takes place October 18th at 6 p.m. at the Fayetteville Public Library. Registration and information at circlesnwa.org. The Amina Figueroa Quintet kicks off Walton Arts Center's Starlight Jazz Club Series Saturday, October 8th at 7.30 p.m. A celebrated pianist, Figueroa was named Composer of the Year in 2014 and 2015 by Downbeat Magazine and is widely considered to be a leader in the modern jazz era. Tickets available at waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, Lee Wood, KUAF's General Manager. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right. Someone else is going to be glad that you're here, and that's someone who's going to be the KUAF winner of the month. That's right. Um, Just as a reminder, every month we pull at random someone from our membership database. That means that uh, anyone who's given a gift in the last 12 months is in the pool, and we randomly choose a name to be able to send that person as a small little token of our thanks you know, movie passes, gift certificates to restaurants so that they can maybe have a nice night out right. on KUAF. Right. And it's available to anybody who has contributed. Yes. All right. All right. And this month I uh, drew Bob and Sharon Chapman of Fort Smith. All right. Yeah. So how will Bob and Sharon find out what they have? How will they we get this to them? I'm going to send them a note and they're just going to get a bunch of free stuff. In the mail you're going to send them. I Yes, I okay. could hand deliver it, but I do think I'll use the USPS needs all the work that we can give them. All right. If you would like to be next month's Bob and Sharon, just go to supportkuaf.com. That's right. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Kyle. Gina Davis got her first big acting job in the Dustin Hoffman comedy Tootsie. She won an Oscar for The Accidental Tourist and starred in A League of Their Own and Thelma and Louise opposite Susan Sarandon. As soon as I met her, I was like... Oh my God, what was I thinking that I could play Louise? Unlike her best-known characters, Davis says she often doubted herself. Her memoir is Dying of Politeness on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Morning Edition tomorrow from 5 to 9 on 91.3 KUAF. Wow, what a totally unexpected but perfect segue into what I was going to talk about next. While we're deep in the autumn festival season of the Ozarks, including the start of the annual Bikes, Blues, and Barbecue festivities launching today in Rogers, dates yesterday were set for the next Bentonville Film Festival, founded by Gina Davis. Yesterday, the festival announced the in-person part of the festival will be June 13th through June 18th in 2023. Streaming options will continue through the 25th of that month. And for the 2023 festival, there will be an animation category. The festival has championed films created by a diverse community since its inception, and it reported yesterday that in last year's collection of films, more than 82% of the competition program from content creators who identify as female or gender nonconforming, 65% who identify as black, indigenous, 
a person of color, Asian, or Pacific Islander, 62% who identify as LGBTQIA+, 42% who are over 50, and 20% who identify as a person with differing abilities. The Sequoia's Cabin Museum in San Luisa will observe Sequoia Day Saturday, October 15th. That will be from 10 until 4. Various artists will be selling artwork. Chugi Kingfisher will be telling stories and playing his flute. And the Cherokee National Adult Choir will perform. The event is open to the public. Visitors can participate in a marbles game, cornstalk shoot, stickball, a pottery firing demonstration, and flint napping. Sequoia's Cabin Museum is located at 470288 Highway 101 in Salisaw. And Puppets in the Park, back Sunday, October 16th from 1230 to 430 that afternoon, hosted again by the Art Experience at Gully Park in Fayetteville. The return to an in-person celebration follows a virtual event in 2020 and a chance to catch collective breaths last year. 2022 edition includes a chance for families to make their own puppets or play and make stories with puppets provided. There will be music, magic performances, and the finale is again the Giant Puppet Parade. There are also volunteer opportunities, much more information by going to artexp.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Starkey Campground. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Matthew Moore, and Cree Banton. Today's show had assistance from the news team at KUAR Radio in Little Rock. I produced today's show inside the Anthony, the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Our operations manager at KUAF is Pete Hartman. You can hear Pete in the community spotlight from the Nancy Blair Operations Studio every weekday morning at 6.30 and 8.30 during Morning Edition. All right, we will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a brand new Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thank you so much for listening. Please get some rest when you can and join us again tomorrow.